Take your Bibles with me. We'll be in John chapter 1. Uh, this is going to be unlike most messages uh, for those who are normally here. This is not normal. We will not spend much time in the text. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the text, talking about this theme, introducing this topic, and, and those things. And so those who've been in our series of Judges, where we just kind of, here's the text, let's dig in and let's go, that's not going to be uh, how it goes this morning. I'm not apologizing. I'm just letting you know for 48 weeks or so out of the year, it's in the text and verse by verse, word by word. This morning is just one of those weeks that's not going to necessarily look just like that. So it's going to take us a while to get to John chapter 1, but this whole morning, in my mind, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it is mostly introducing this, this little mini-series leading us up to Christmas. So we have three weeks Christmas Eve service is not going to be me preaching, so I have, I have three messages. Here's message one kind of leading us into this, this story. Uh, this idea, uh, I'm going to talk about the title in just a second, but this idea of where I kind of wanted to park came from, discussion group comes from, I don't know, it's been in my, my heart for a while. It might not be the most Christmas of stories, but we'll make it work. Uh, okay, so a couple weeks ago, this is a video that I saw of Tim Keller. Tim Keller's quoting C.S. Lewis, who's talking about a quote from a Russian astronaut. I'm not exactly sure where they all fit together and who said what, so I'm just going to, there they are, right? Tim Keller, C.S. Lewis, Russian astronaut. But, but there's a story in 1961, this Russian astronaut goes into some sort of orbit, outer space, and, and they ask him when he comes back, what did you see? What was it like? You know, all these different things. And this Russian astronaut would say, I saw a lot of things. It was beautiful, all of that. And then he says, but I never found God. Right? And so C.S. Lewis, who, who was living at the time, just died a few years after this, they asked C.S. Lewis, what do you think about this Russian astronaut who would, who would go into heaven, go into space, and say, there is no God? Like, there's no evidence, there's those things. And C.S. Lewis gives this illustration, and this is where we get the title of Into Our Story. C.S. Lewis would say, if, if you were Hamlet, right, Shakespeare writes a character named Hamlet. If you're Hamlet, like, like do you know Shakespeare? No, you wouldn't. You'd see evidences of him. So he would make this argument about, here's an astronaut who goes into orbit and, and can see all these things. Like, you should have walked away from that saying, hey, there's fingerprints of God all over the place. Like, we, we, can, we can pick up on this. just didn't happen by chance. Like, somebody created this. And so, so for Hamlet, he gives this analogy, for Hamlet to go look for Shakespeare in the attic of his castle or wherever he lives, like, like he goes there, like, you're not going to find him there. You don't find Shakespeare in the attic of the story. Like, that's not where Shakespeare resides. He's totally, completely outside the story. And so C.S. Lewis is like, but could, could Hamlet see the, the evidences of Shakespeare? Like, he likes tragedies. He likes some comedies. He likes to use language that nobody knows what he's trying to communicate. Like, yeah, we can learn that about Shakespeare from the story. Okay, so, so here's Hamlet, who has some idea of Shakespeare. But then he goes on. I don't know if this is where C.S. Lewis says it or if this is where Tim Keller joins in. But, but at some point... Tim Keller, at least, would say what? He goes, but there is a way for Shakespeare and Hamlet to know each other. Okay, we know Hamlet's not real. Okay, we got that? Okay, but there's a way for them to know each other. How is it if Shakespeare were to write himself into the story? If Shakespeare says, hey, I'm going to write myself into the story, and now there's dialogue, and now there's just conversation, and now we communicate, and now you can know me face to face, not just from the fingerprints that are all around the story, but you can know me. Okay, what did, what did God do 2,000 years ago? He wrote himself into our story. Right, we, we've got fingerprints all over the place. We have his, his word that we can read. And yet, 2,000 years ago, he comes into the story. 
It becomes a character in the middle of the story. And so what we want to celebrate this week and the next following weeks is this idea of end of the story. Like he's come into our story so that we might know him in a different way. Okay, so here's what we're talking about though, right? In the middle of Judges, where we've been working through that book, we're going to come back to that. It's probably going to be six weeks or so. Like, anyway, uh, we'll come back to Judges. But like in the middle of Judges, there's a story of Gideon. What happens? Gideon sees the angel of the Lord. So, so here's this picture of here's Jesus uh, puts on some sort of flesh, comes and, and, and has a conversation with Gideon. We see it again with Manoah, the father of Samson. And so it's like there's been this Old Testament idea of here comes God and inserting himself into the story at different times. Jacob wrestles with God. Okay, and yet with Jesus, with Christmas, it wasn't just for a conversation. It wasn't just to call someone up to go do something great for the glory of God. It was 30 years. It's a perfect life. It's born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And the story is more complete. It's more, I think, beautiful and, 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 and fills in all the gaps. Okay, so, so what have we been longing for in the book of Judges? We've been longing for a better judge, a better deliverer. We've been longing for someone who would not die. Because this judge, even the good ones, it's like they ruled over Israel for 40 years and they had rest and then they died. And so we've been longing for somebody better. And so now God himself would write himself into the story. There's a song, not a Christmas song, but we sing it here sometimes by City Light. It's called, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. In the first line of that song, what gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? Okay, so here's this gift of Jesus that he would come and write himself into our story. And then the next phrase is this, there is no more for heaven now to give. Like, do we, do we grasp that? Like, at this Christmas season, like, do we grasp the fact that God didn't just give us another deliverer? God just didn't give us somebody. God didn't just give us a, an example maybe to follow. No, God gave us himself. He literally wrote himself into our story. We get to, we get to have a conversation with him. We get to know him. Like, like, he is living, those of us who are believers, he's living, his spirit is inside of you because of what Christ has done. Like, like, this is amazing. And yet, in our selfish, uh, short-sighted, temporal thinking, we can get to the Christmas season and be real upset on the 25th because there's not a white Lexus with a red bow on our driveway. Like, we get real upset because, because maybe somebody burnt the cinnamon rolls. And it's like, you just ruined Christmas. Like, like all of a sudden, it's like, we're so short-sighted that it's like, here's God who would, who would see miserable, desperate people who are broken, and he says, I'm going to write myself into the story. And we're upset because we didn't get what we wanted, some temporal thing that's probably going to break in two years. Right, like, like, so this morning, this this next couple of weeks, just want to take our eyes maybe a little bit off the of, of the the normal Christmas, the 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 commercialized Christmas, and like, hey, let's remind ourselves of what what God has done. He's he's entered into our story. Okay, all that to say, uh, I didn't want to call it into your story, but I felt like story, Christmas story, like that sounds kind of Christmassy at least. So at least we're there. I really wanted to say into our mess. Right, like going through the book of Judges, like, I mean, Gideon, as much as we like praise him, like we get to the next chapter of Gideon's life and it's like, ooh, that's not just clean, tidy, beautiful. That's actually real messy. And then Abimelech shows up and it's like, that's even messier. And now we're in Jephthah and like, that's even worse. And we just started Samson and just, spoiler alert for Samson, he does nothing good. And it's like all of a sudden, it's not just that, it's not just God entered into the story because he wanted to and we're nice, beautiful people. Like, no, he enters into the mess of this creation and, and how much we've, we've rebelled against him and how much we've, we've rejected him. Like, he enters into that mess. 
we sang a song, I forget which one already, but like we sang a song, but it wasn't just that you came with like into Rome with your host of heaven. Like, no, you came into the mess. Like, like you came and, and lived in the dark world that, that you didn't necessarily create to go this way, but yet you still entered into that. You don't have to turn there. We're not going to read through all of it. But if you go to Matthew 1, it's probably one of the most skipped over chapters in all of Matthew. It's the genealogy of Jesus. And you get a bunch of names over and over and over again. Okay, but if you, just, if you were just park on, on the genealogy that Matthew gives us and just, just go through a couple names. I'm just going to go through them. We're not going to read them all, right? Uh, Abraham, that's where Matthew starts. And so at some level, we're like, Abraham, father of the nation of Israel, like, great guy, great faith, follows God, for, God from Ur and does all this. And, and yet, here's Abraham who lies twice about his wife being his sister because he's scared. Here's a man who, who takes, you're going to have a son? Thanks, God, I'm going to go have my own son because I don't believe you. So here's someone who doesn't have faith, struggling with faith, and yet, yet he's part of this lineage of, of Jesus. Two generations, two generations later, we have Jacob. Like, him and his mom work together to steal the birthright from the older brother. Like, like, that's not exactly like, oh, yeah, great family line. What a cool family tree. Right? The next one, Judah. Like, Judah, tribe of Judah, like the lion, the tribe of Judah. Like, oh, how cool is that, Judah? Yeah, we love that story. And yet it says in Matthew 1, it doesn't just say Judah. It says Judah and Tamar. Like, if you're trying to write a, a genealogy, a lineage of Jesus, and you want it to be clean and tidy, you don't say Judah and Tamar. You, you say Judah hoping they don't remember the name Tamar. Right, because what's that story? It's a story of a father-in-law whose, whose daughter-in-law loses the, the, her husband, so his son, right? He should, he should supply a new husband. That was the cultural thing. He doesn't do that. So what does she do? She takes matters in her own hands, dresses up like a prostitute, and gets him to, to sleep with her and have a kid. He gets real upset that she's pregnant, and then she says, you're the guy. Right, like, like if we're trying to say clean, neat, tidy, beautiful family tree that Jesus came from, we would maybe say Judah, but we definitely don't say Judah and Tamar. We definitely don't say another name in the list, which is Rahab. She didn't just dress up like a prostitute. That's what she did. She wasn't even an Israelite. She's from Jericho. Then you have David. It's interesting when you get to David's name because it says he's the father of Solomon. And then it says whose mother was the wife of Uriah. Like they're not trying to hide it. Like it's not like Jesus said, hey, I'm going to choose you because you're beautiful, pretty, nice, and tidy. He doesn't even try to clean up the, the genealogy in Matthew. Like he, makes a, he makes a very distinct point to be like, hey, Solomon, his mom, wife of Uriah. We don't, he doesn't even say her name. He just describes her as the wife of Uriah. And so just from the genealogies alone, what do we see? We see that God hasn't just distanced himself. He doesn't write himself in the story and say, all right, now I'm going to go live in a palace. Now I'm going to go be far away from sin. Now I'm going to be far away. Like, no, he's entered into the story, but he's also entered into our mess. And somewhere along the lines, we have this skewed theology that we got to clean up ourselves before we can come to Jesus. That somehow we got we to present ourselves, we got to get a little prettier, we got a little bit nicer, we got a little bit more beautiful. And yet, even from the genealogies themselves, the story of Jesus is what? Is that he enters into our mess. He, he's here for us. You go back to Luke's account, we're not going to go there. Luke 3, he talks about his genealogies. He goes all the way back to Adam. And, and here's Adam, like Adam and Eve from the very beginning would be what? They can walk with God. They have a relationship with God that we would, I don't even know how to imagine that. And yet, what do they do? They think they're smarter than God. I'm going to eat with the fruit that he told us not to eat. I'm going to do the very thing they told us not to do because I, I think we're better than that. I think we would make a better God than God himself. Right? Like, God has entered our story. He's entered into our mess. So what do we see? We see Jews. We see Gentiles. We see rich and noble. We see poor and needy. We see famous people. We see people we literally know nothing about. And they're all in this lineage of Jesus. 
And at some level, what is, it, what is he trying to communicate? I think we're trying to communicate that God uh, is, is in our story and he's in our mess. A guy by the name of J.D. Walt would say this. It makes sense, doesn't it, that the Savior and Redeemer of the whole world, when it would inextricably identify himself with such a sordid, sordid storyline. That's how this God works. He doesn't fly above the fray of the dark devastation of the human race, as only the light of the world could do. He embedded himself right smack dab in the middle of the darkness. And, on, and as only the resurrection of life could do, he ran headlong straight into the very jaws of death. Can you believe in a God like that? Sorry for not skipping the slide. Next one. It's the same God who enters into the depths of our self-deceiving storylines. Absolutely no one is beyond the reach of redemption. It's all right there in the genealogy. Who knew? Like, do we grasp? Like, there's no one beyond the reach of redemption, okay? Now, now for some of us, we're thinking of somebody else. Like, we're thinking, like, maybe if there was somebody beyond the the reach of redemption, maybe it's him, right? And for some of us, whether we're, we're believers or unbelievers, there's some of us that are thinking about ourselves. Like, like if there's someone who's beyond the reach of redemption, it's me. Like, I know my heart. I know my wickedness. And yet a simple reading of Matthew 1 would say, God's at work in your mess. God hasn't given up on you. God hasn't figured out a new people. God is, God's not done with you. And, and again, the skewed theology, it's like, we don't have to clean ourselves up, but also God's just not in love with some future version of you. It's not like God's in love with you because he thinks you might do something good in the future. Like, he loves you in the moment and the mess that you're in right now. So again, what do we want to do? We want to take our eyes maybe off of of the commercialized Christmas. We want to take our eyes maybe off of of what we think and say, hey, here's a God who writes himself into our story, who writes himself into our mess. Like this morning, there's no one in this room without a mess. Can we just acknowledge that? Recognize that? Somewhere along the line, life is messy. All right, John 1. Uh, Before we get to John 1, um, let's rewind a little bit. A couple weeks ago, I don't know when I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it now. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I think it was story of Jephthah in Judges. And we, we got to a discussion group. And, and I, don't, I don't remember the exact week, but I remember what was said. And there was something about neat and tidy and clean and all those things. And, and somebody else in the discussion group said, uh, yeah, but, but like, that's, not, that's not Jesus. That's not the church. Like, we want a church that's messy because people are messy. Sinners are messy. So if we don't have a messy church, then, then therefore we're missing something. Right? And, and so again, like, I, I feel like here's God at work in the mess, and we've said that. Like, not just me up here saying it right now, like, we've said that in our own discussion group. That at some level, we want a messy church. And if we don't have a messy church, then at some level, we're missing it. Why? Because Jesus hung out with messy people. And so again, like, he's, he's at work in our mess, but, but I also, if we're going to be like him, what does that mean? It means that we need to be looking, can I say it that way? We're looking for the mess, we're, we're inviting people in who are messy. Like, we want them to be part of this because that's who our God is. Okay, now we're going to go to John 1. Uh, John 1, we're going to focus on one word. We're going to read a couple of verses to get to that one word, uh, talk a little bit of the context. But here we go. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some translations are going to use that word comprehend and say uh, overcome. The darkness did not overcome it. There came a man sent from God 
whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, context, we're going we're to talk about the word dwelt. That's where we're going to land in verse 14. But let's talk a little bit about the context. The end of verse 14, what does it say? He dwelt among us. And what did we see? What did, what did humanity that was living on earth, what did John and other disciples, like what did the fathers, what did they see? They saw glory. The glory of what? Glory as the only begotten from the Father. Okay, again, we're in the middle of Judges, so I'm just going to keep going back to that this morning. You're middle judges. We see Gideon. We see Jephthah. We're going to see Samson here in a second. Like, we, we see all these different judges. Like, nobody would get to the end of that story and be like, you know what we saw? We saw glory. Jephthah would offer his daughter as a human sacrifice. No one looks at us and says, man, that's the glory of the Father. Like, we've been longing for somebody who would be better. We've been longing for somebody who's greater. And, and here's John who sees Jesus, who's, who's seen him face to face, who's had conversations with him. And he says, what did we see? We saw glory. We saw this perfect representation of the Father. Like this one that we're looking for. What else does it say there? It says grace and truth. Again, in the book of Judges, what have we seen? We haven't necessarily seen grace and truth. We've seen pride. We've seen arrogance. We've seen idolatry. We've seen sin. We've seen brokenness. We've seen all these different things in the book of Judges. And we're longing for something better. And God doesn't just send something, quote unquote, better. He sends himself. Let's just try another deliverer. He sends himself into our story, into our mess. And what do we see? We see glory. We see grace and truth. We talked about it earlier, verse 9. Here's this light that comes into the world. But, but what's the idea? I guess all the way back to verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. Like he, didn't, he doesn't come and just shine light. Like, no, he's in the darkness. Like he comes into our story. He comes into our mess. He comes into our darkness and he shines his light. Like that is what Jesus has done. That is what he's calling us to do. And, and again, just take our eyes off of ourselves and look to the one who's come into our story. The word we're going to look at this morning, though, verse 14, we're just really going to spend time on one word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. One translation takes that word dwelt and says moves into the neighborhood. And, and I, I struggle with that, uh, maybe a little, but, but the idea that he's near, like I like that idea. But the Greek word isn't necessarily where you live. It, the Greek word actually means to tabernacle. And, and so he, he come and he tabernacled among us. Okay, so, so those of you reading your Bible in your Old Testament, maybe your Exodus, Leviticus, somewhere in there, uh, you're reading a lot about tabernacle right now. Okay, what was the purpose of the tabernacle? Like there's a lot, we could go down this road for a long time, we're just going to spend time on two. Okay, first purpose of the tabernacle. You read through the tabernacle. What was it? It was a place of worship. Uh, what was a big part of worship? It was offering animal sacrifices to God. Why? Why, does, why do we need a tabernacle where people can offer sacrifices to God? Because we're broken and we're sinners. Right? Like, like God didn't give up on his people and say, hey, you, you blew it. Time to, time to end it. No, he's actually said, hey, you blew it. Now I'm going to come and I'm going to provide a way for us to have a, a relationship that's restored. I'm going I'm to have this tabernacle where you can, you can come and present this offering. And it's going to be Old Testament. There's no Jesus. So what is it? It's going to be bloody. It's going to be animals. It's going to be every day just about. And it's going to be constant death. 
this constant reminder of your sin and where it leads and all these different things. But here's this place where God provides for his people. It's called the tabernacle and it's a place where God and man can meet through the, through the, through the shed blood of a sacrifice. When Jesus comes and he says that he, he dwelt, he tabernacled with us, I can't help but think there's this picture where God and man come and they meet. Like, not just that he's the God-man, but the fact that here's a relationship with God and here's man, it's been broken, it's been marred, and when we blew it and we sinned and we rebelled and we did all those things, and yet through Christ, he, he tabernacled with these people, there's, there's this place where, where man and God can be restored. Like, the tabernacle is not there because all of Israel is perfect. God provides the tabernacle because all of Israel was totally imperfect. There's an illustration. Matt Chandler, pastor in Texas, he uses this illustration. He had specific things. We're not, I won't worry about all the specifics, but he went to younger years, went to a young adult, I don't know, some sort of conference. And in the conference, uh, the guy talking about sin, he had a specific sin. We're just going to leave it broad. Uh, here's this broad sin, and he says, sin mars you, and sin breaks you, and sin makes you not very, very, very beautiful, and, and all this thing about sin. And so what does he do? Is He takes a rose, and he hands it to the person in the front row, and he says, smell the rose, and pass it along to the next person thousand people, whatever they are in the audience, uh, they all pass the rose, they all touch the rose, they all stuck it in their nose, they all do these things, and he preaches for an hour, however long he goes, and at the end of this, this sermon, he asks for the rose back. And whatever beauty it used to have, it no longer has. Petals are falling off, things are broken, like, like it used to be a beautiful rose when he first held it up, and now uh, he would use the analogy that sin has broken it and marred it and destroyed it. And then he horribly holds the rose up and says, who wants this rose? Like, who would ever want this broken, just destroyed, no longer beautiful rose? And so the illustration was what? Was be separate from sin. Don't be like that. Don't do these things. Don't ruin your life. Like, okay, I get all that. And yet Chandler's sitting in the back row screaming, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants our brokenness. Jesus entered into our mess. Jesus didn't come when we were perfect and then somehow we messed it up. It wasn't that God sent his son into the world and it's like, all of a sudden, like, oh, shoot, they were worse than I thought they were. Like, he came into the story knowing exactly who we are. Broken and, 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 and hurt and lonely and, and destitute, unable to help ourselves. Like, that's when he entered into our story. That's when he entered into our mess. Not when we were perfect and beautiful and, and not marred by sin. So again, what's the picture of the sacrifice or the tabernacle? The picture of the tabernacle is a sacrifice, a place to bring God and man back together. Like we need the tabernacle, Old Testament. We need the tabernacle because of sin. We need Jesus because of sin. He's not, we don't have to hide it. We run to Jesus. He is our savior. He's the one who's redeemed us. Second idea here of the tabernacle. And again, we could go down this road a lot longer than we are this morning. Second idea of the tabernacle is this. Where's the location of the tabernacle? And some of you are like, oh, it was movable. They could pick it up and move it. Like, okay, I'm not talking about that. Like when you set up camp, where'd you put the tabernacle? Far away? Distant? Not near anything? In the heart of the camp. Right in the middle. So you want to know where the tabernacle was? It was right in the middle. And if you know anything about Israel, it was right in the middle of the mess. It wasn't, it wasn't that God was far away. It wasn't that you had to work real hard and climb a mountain to go in the presence of God at the tabernacle. No, it was right in the middle. Which again, in my mind, is saying what? It's saying that Jesus has come and he has tabernacled with us. He has come and he is here and he is in our mess and he is in our story. And so what do we, what do, we do with this? Like, like how, how are we going to respond this week and the next couple of weeks of this idea of, of God coming into the story, coming into our mess? What do, we, what do we do with that? Okay, I just have two quick things and, and then we'll be done. I, I didn't count them this morning. 
Uh, Casey told me 42. I think some bags have already been taken. But, but here's a guy who enters into our mess. Lovingly, I hope these bags go out to people whose stories are a mess. Right? And so, so I want to be like Jesus. I want to enter into the mess of somebody else's life. I want to be able to not just hand them a bag, but I want to be able to pull over on the side of the road in a parking lot and be like, hey, how you doing? We love you. Here's a bag. Okay? Here's the other thing. What if, can, can I say it this way without sounding pragmatic or something? What if the bag works? What if, what if in two weeks we have four or five people whose lives are messy, maybe addicted to different drugs, maybe broken relations? Like, what if, what if they, they work and someone's like, dude, I think a church actually cares about me and walks in the door? Like, are we going to be willing to be like, you know what, God's entered into our mess, and so here's a mess. We're, we're entering into other people's messes. J.D. Walt says there's no one beyond the reach of redemption. We notice that from the genealogy. I feel like in our culture today, it would be real easy for someone to walk in the door who has a mess, and we're just like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's too messy. Right? Maybe it's not the fact they're messy. Maybe it's just the fact that we feel like we've worked hard for what, they, what we have, and they haven't, and so therefore somehow we're better than they are. Like, whatever it is, but there's some sort of mess, there's some sort of brokenness, there's some sort of hurt, there's some sort of whatever that, that Jesus is inviting us into. Like, you're going to represent him? All right, here it is. God's at work in the mess. Second thing that I want us to do. So one, I want us to be like Jesus. I don't want us to run from the mess. I don't want us to, we don't have to clean ourselves up. Jesus has got that. Right? We're going to live differently because of him. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But, but it's his spirit. It's, it's Jesus. It's God. God's at work sanctifying us. Okay, so we want to embrace the mess. We want to embrace the mess of other people. Second thing, I've said this one kind of throughout the message, but I just want us to stop and see the beauty of God. Like, here's a God who loves us. Now, doesn't love some idea of us, doesn't just love us because somehow we can build his kingdom and he needs us. Like, he doesn't need us. There's never a point in the Bible where it's like, oh, God needs humanity so they can build his kingdom. Like, no, that's never the story. The story is, one, his glory, and the second storyline is what? Is that God is love. Like, period. We can put a period there. God is love, period. And so what does a loving God do? Is he enters into the story and he enters into our mess. And he sanctifies and he grows and he changes and he, and he changes our heart. And so we, all of us, those of you who are believers, could stand up here and talk about the, the mess that once was or the mess that you're per- currently going through and the fact that God has grown you through it. Like he doesn't waste the mess. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not frustrated at the mess. Like he can use your mess for his glory. Uh, here's a God who loves you. And I just want us to be able to pause and say, God, thank you. Thank you that you would enter our mess. Thank you for Christmas. Not for stories and traditions and, and different, like, thank you that you put on flesh and you dwelt among us. You tabernacled with us. Thank you that we don't have to go through this mess or anybody else's mess alone. Like, like we got this. Okay, and again, this has been on my heart for a couple months. I feel like it's at least somewhat in our church because we set it in discussion. And so what do I want? I want us to, let's go. Let's, let's, let's go find people. Let's be willing to invite them in. And let's at some point right now, today, whenever, just be able to stop and recognize, God, what did you do? Like, God, what did you do in my life? Like, the mess that I was in. Like, God, thank you. Thank you for Christmas. You know, I could get zero presents this year, and, and the greatest gift has already been given. Right? It's, it's not about everything else. Like, God, thank you for entering into my mess. Let's pray, take a little break, and then discuss group to follow. Father. The story of Christmas should blow our minds. Like it should totally be unbelievable that, that a creator God of the universe who is holy and perfect in every single way would look at me, would look at humanity, 
and would love, would love us, would love us to the point that he's going to write himself into the story that you would put on flesh. Jesus, we thank you that you lived a perfect life. We thank you that you, you died a perfect death. We thank you that you rose again and conquered death and hell and sin. Like this is the greatest gift. This is the greatest story. This is what uh, our lives should be about, the gospel, living it, telling it to others. And yet it's so easy to get wrapped up in the things of this world. And so, God, I pray that this morning, that this, that t- today, this week, going into this Christmas season, that you would get our eyes less and less on the material and the earthly and more and more on, on what you've done, what you're, what you're continuing to do in building your kingdom through the work of Jesus, through the work of your church. God, thank you for entering into our mess. Thank you for not just leaving us. I pray that you would... Use these blessing bags in the building of your kingdom. Give us opportunities to, to invite messy people into our mess that you are already working in. Give us boldness. Give us, give us grace to go forth and, and do what Jesus has already done. We love you. Once again, we thank you for this time. We pray for a discussion group to come. May you give us wisdom. May we encourage one another with our words. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.